Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Mark Riley. And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? Well, H is for Hunky Dory. Oh, it couldn't be anything else, really, could it? Not to start with. So, Bowie's fourth studio album, released on the 17th of December 1971, and it was his first release through RCA. Now, lest we forget, Tony DeFries had uh, really gone out of his way to get David Bowie out of the contract that he had with Mercury, yeah. hadn't he? Mm. And uh, he particularly wanted him to go on to RCA because he, he knew that Elvis Presley, obviously the biggest rock and roll star in the world ever, yeah. was uh, on RCA Records, and he had David Bowie down as being the next one. Yeah. And so he was quite happy to take Bowie to RCA, and of course David Bowie was very happy to go there as well. But, and this is the interesting thing, it was only after the commercial breakthrough of Ziggy Stardust, mid-1972, that anybody became interested in Hunky Dory, largely speaking, and it made number three in the UK, and uh, it remained in the charts for 69 weeks. Yeah. And then, confusingly, June 1973, so 18 months later, after Hunky Dory has been released, RCA released Life on Mars as a single, which also made number three. Oh, head-scratching here. So this is yet another confusing chronological step in Bowie's career and discography. So, you know, 72, 73, anybody who's got uh, Ziggy and Aladdin Sane, suddenly you've got Hunky Dory on the market there. And you're wondering, wh- wh- where does this all fit in? What's the sort of chronological, where's the steps here? And you've got to remember too, 1973, with Bowie at the peak of his early fame in Britain. They even had the temerity to reissue Laughing Gnome. But we're not going to go there, are we? We're confused no. enough already, no. So let's get to a timeline. So some of the demos of Hunky Dory recorded at Radio Luxembourg Studio as early as January 71 with Bob Grace, who we've already covered on a previous podcast. So in August of 71, Bowie told a music journalist, he said, two years ago, I used to be one of the most serious of serious people. I used to come out with great drooling epics, which are really tedious and boring. And since I got back from the States, my material has become a lot lighter. Before I went over there, I used to think I had problems. I decided it wasn't worth singing about myself. So instead, I decided to write about anything that came to mind. So you just get this sense of Bowie just freeing himself up creatively. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that he is, in a way, just writing off The Man Who Sold The World, which, you know, again, you look back at it, is a remarkable record, but he seems to be like, no, OK, and this is a pattern that does emerge. But you can see his songwriting, it's moving on, you know, mm. particularly with, uh, well, Life On Mars, Oh You Pretty Things and Bulay Brothers, Quicksand 2. Yeah, They're all really kind of mature, you know, 
little songs, aren't they? They're mm. all pretty remarkable. Uh, and at this point in time, there's somebody we'll mention a lot in these podcasts, only because it's a fair thing to do, would be Kevin Can from his book Any Day Now, which yeah. is a bit of a Bible in it, Bob, definitely. So the 30th of May, 1971, David is at home listening to a Neil Young album. Now we know where this is going. When the call comes through from Bromley Hospital in Blythe Road, Angie Bowie has given birth to their son, Duncan Zowie Zoe Haywood Jones, accompanied by Bob Grace, David heads to the hospital. So we've covered a little bit of that before about him supposedly, you know... Um, <laughs> cooing over the wrong baby. Cooing over the wrong baby. We, we won't mention that again. No. Oh, oh we just oh. did. Uh, but to commemorate the birth, David completes Kooks. Now, this is a song that he's been working on, apparently, for more than a year. Now, this is strange, isn't it? Because, you know, OK, I don't mind Kooks Cooks. I don't mind that at all. But, I mean, it is a pretty simply structured song, isn't it? And you think, well, how did it start off? How many changes did this go through? It's a pleasant pop song, and it's the kind of thing, no offence to anybody, but that you would imagine you'd just sit down with an acoustic guitar and you could rattle off quite easily. It's a lullaby, isn't it, essentially? It is, it is. But anyway, that was the story behind it. So, Tuesday the 8th of June, David Bowie, Trevor Boulder, Mick Ronson and Woody Woodmansey gather at Trident for the recording sessions for the tracks that will appear on the next album, which proved to be Hunky Dory. And on that particular day, they recorded Song for Bob Dylan, a Ken Scott engineers and co-producer with David, and recorded is carried out at a swift pace. So, I mean, they didn't mess about. They no. really didn't. And, uh, yeah, so also Wednesday, the uh, 9th of June, Bowie appears on Top of the Pops playing piano behind Peter Noon for his version of Oh You Pretty Things. Yeah, so the end of June, go to the 30th of June. Now, another visitor to Haddon Hall is a keyboard player, Rick Wakeman, who'd agreed to play on the sessions. Years later, Wakeman said, I've been given the honour of hearing tracks like Life on Mars and changes in their raw, brilliant form. I couldn't wait to get into the studio to record them. Fast forward now to uh, the 9th of July and Wakeman joins the band and Donna Gillespie at Trident to record It Ain't Easy and Bombers. And again, you know, this chronological sort of haphazard way of recording here, you've got It Ain't, it Ain't Easy, a cover in the first place, which ends up on Ziggy, Bombers, which doesn't end up on anything until years later, all being recorded at the same time. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, yeah, it's a chronological nightmare. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, uh, Wakeman later said that Bowie gave all the band a dressing down for not being on top of the songs, really failing to nail them properly, not doing them quickly enough, but all the other band members conversely sort of refute this, saying that Bowie wouldn't do that in front of the studio staff and also not in front of Wakeman, particularly as Ronson and Woody had already left the band once, so Bowie was on shaky ground here and he probably knew it. Well, I mean we the story we've been through before of uh, Mick Ronson thinking he's had enough, particularly when uh, talking about wearing kind of, uh, you know, the glam clothes and yeah. all that kind of stuff and, and, and tarting himself up a little bit and he was off to the railway station wasn't he? And Woody had to go and bring him back. Yeah, he was sent to dispatch him. So anyway, so the next Next few weeks, the album's recorded and mixed at Trident. Yeah, so it was the 6th of August, the day Life on Mars was recorded, and Song for Bob Dylan. That's a very productive mm. day in anybody's book, and they didn't mess about. According to Woody Woodman, they didn't have many rehearsals for the sessions either. So he, Woody reckons that they would just, every now and then, do a bit at Haddon Hall, but they didn't they didn't hire anywhere. They no. didn't get a proper studio and sit there and go through it laboriously and nail it. They just uh, had a go in, the, uh, in Haddon Hall and then went into the studio... You you know, prepared, but not over-prepared, you'd have to say. Yeah. 26th of July, the final mixing session for Hunky Dory. The 19th of October, Jem presses a preview copy of Hunky Dory featuring the final track listing and the mix. 
Yeah. Okay, so they've nailed it. They yes. know what the product is. The record company, presumably, and the band, very happy. Here's the thing. Monday, the 8th of November, work begins on the follow-up to Hunky Dory, which will be Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. So the album that many people consider to be one of David Bowie's best, perhaps his best, was almost dismissed just even before it had begun. You wonder, don't you, sort of Bowie's thought processes here, because certainly he must have had faith in the, in the album itself. He knew these were a great set of songs, and he was willing to promote them but at the same time his mind was teeming with ideas he was on a creative role wasn't he and Ziggy was pouring out at the same time so we had to get it down somewhere he was getting really excited I spoke to Di Davis who worked for David yeah he worked for Main Man and he was telling me that he went to do a, a recording of Holy Holy at Granada and we'll get into all this at another stage and, and probably I've done previously slightly uh, but he just said that it was at that point in time when he first started talking about Ziggy and he was just talking all the way back from Manchester to London overnight in a car about this new thing. Oh, really? So wow. he, had an- he had ants in his pants. Yeah. So 17th of December, 71, Hunky Dory is finally released and it's happening for him in the States as well because RCA Records in New York hear the tapes and they sign him to a three-album deal So and Changes is going to be the single. So it's all set up for him, isn't it? Production-wise, Ken Scott's brought in as co-producer who was a recording engineer and mixer, of course. Apparently, he'd been brought in when Tony Visconti fell out with Bowie after the appointment of Tony DeFries for whatever reason. You know, Visconti he just wasn't keen on that. Uh, Bowie would later call Ken Scott his George Martin in much the same way he called Mick Ronson his own Jeff Beck. Right, you know? yeah. And Bowie loved the way Ken would tip up to work in a shirt and tie, go home to his missus at the end of the day. I love that. So he just treated it as a nine to five, you know, and on this rock star, rock and roll nonsense lifestyle, back to the missus. But that was the George Martin way, wasn't yeah. it? The old school. And a lot of the technicians would wear lab coats. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't so much later that people started turning up with, you know, the granddad vests and the flares on. But he, <laughs> Yeah, you know, he liked that. So the co-producer, Ken Scott, just hugely important in the success of the album. And it was his first proper production job. He'd worked with the Beatles, as we say, and a few other artists before. As an engineer, he worked on The Man Who Sold The World. So the album sleeve would bear the credit, produced by Ken Scott, assisted by the actor, which even at this stage, before he came up with the Ziggy character, he considered himself to be, which is really interesting. You know, so uh, maybe... This was the point in his career where he thought, I am just lots of different characters mm. and you never know what's going to come next. He, he Again, he had Ziggy whirling around in his head and he'd had all these different different guises that he'd been through before. Maybe he thought, actually, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with theatre and this is different to my last record. Maybe I am actually an actor and he, and he calls himself as much on the, uh, on the sleeve notes there. Yeah. Now, uh, Ken's thoughts on being asked to step up a gear. He said, David booked a session producing a friend of his, which we reckon is Arnold Corns. Mm. He said, I was booked on the session because we'd been working together before. During one of the tea breaks, I told him I wanted to get out of engineering and move into production. He said, hey, I've just signed a new management deal and they want to put me in the studio to record an album. I was going to produce it myself, but I don't know if I'm capable of doing that. Would you co-produce with me? And of course, I said yes. Of course he said yes. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't turn that down, would you? So Ken Scott goes on to say uh, one of David's greatest skills was assembling teams. And on Hunky Dory, he set up his first real team featuring myself, Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder, Woody Woodmancy and of course Bowie himself Rick Waitman got involved later too to put down the keyboards. It felt like we were equal partners in the music and that was the amazing thing. When David put a team together he trusted everybody implicitly. This is something that keeps recurring doesn't it? This yep. kind of placing trust in people. Uh, Life on Mars he said it was just brilliant. I mean Hunky Dory would have still been a great album without that song but it really is the clincher. Of the four co-production jobs I did with David that song is top of the list of things we did together. Hunky Dory said Ken was a game changer for English music 
like the kind of beginning of the whole glam rock thing. And it's when David, who was such an incredible artist, really got to show himself. For me, it's important for that. Ken is now a lecturer at a uh, university in Yorkshire, and mm. I met up with him not so long ago in uh, Yorkshire. And uh, he's such a great fella. But he told me that he does uh, lectures, naturally. Yeah. Uh, it would be a waste if he didn't. And so all of the students in there are actually in the presence of somebody who's worked with the Beatles and David Bowie and Supertramp and lots of other mm. artists as well. And what he does, he breaks down classic songs that he's worked on, like Life on Mars, so that they can hear all the component parts. He'll say, right, this is a piano. And and this is an amazing oh. learning curve for, for students. I did interview Ken Scott myself when he was living in the States. This is probably going back 10 years or so now, and he was a wonderful interview, very kind of forthcoming, talking about Bowie. Nothing but great stuff to say about Bowie, as you can imagine. Uh, said some sim- along similar lines to this. He said, when we recorded Space Oddity and then The Man Who Sold the World, I thought he was a really nice guy who obviously had a certain amount of talent, but I could never see him actually being big, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you think, yeah, okay, we, you could see the potential here, but, but it all seemed like a little bit wayward. Maybe a bit Bowie didn't have focus, and Ken Scott thought, I've seen this before, it's not going to work, you know? He says, uh, then they asked me to co-produce what turned out to be Hunky Dory, and I thought, great, I'm going to learn a new gig, producing, and I actually have the luxury of making mistakes because no one's ever going to hear this record. Wrong. Then it was about three weeks later, I heard the songs at my house, and that's when the light bulb went off. Oh, shit, it could be huge. He got it eventually, didn't he? And, uh, and Ken Scott said of the difference between him and Tony Visconti, he said, Tony is a great, great producer, and he was also the bass player and the musical director of the band. So I think David had no input on the production. I think it was all Tony. I think they wanted to sort of break away and work with someone who wasn't going to change things too much musically. I don't know a D minor from a B minor particularly, he said. So uh, that put David in a position where he could put his own musical ideas together, and that was what made him what he became on Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. Uh, He also said it was interesting to see him grow. He became fearless. It was working, and that gave him more confidence. You know, so people were stopping Bowie for the first time in his life. Obviously... Space Oddity had done the, the job for him. Mm. And some people were a little bit sniffy about the fact that it was a novelty record, yeah. in inverted commas. Uh, other people just thought it was a masterpiece. Uh, but on this record, it, people recognised the fact that, yeah, these were all great songs. And you, you, you've really come of age, in a way. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's probably still my favourite Bowie album, I have to say. And it's right. certainly his first singer-songwriter album. It's in a sort of classic vein. I love this, though. There's another quote from Ken Scott where he says, you know, when people actually like the songs, that made it even better for Bowie. He said he wasn't bothered about taking the audience with him. Again, you know, this is really kind of crucial to the way he went forward from here on. He says, you know, in Bowie's words, he said, I'm going to put my own ideas out there because this is what I want to do and this is what I think works. So this is central to the whole Bowie's philosophy. Bowie uh, said that he had a great... Him and his his audience had a... And we're it. Yeah. Um, but uh, he had a great relationship with his audience because every now and then he would go a little bit wayward, but they'd let him off. They might not go and see him, but they would come yeah, back yeah, again to yeah. see what he was doing the next time. Yeah, so we look at the personnel on Hunky Dory here. Of course, you've got Bowie, the core band, uh, Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder, and Mick Woodwancy. Rick Wakeman, of course, which is very nearly uh, Dudley Moore on piano. I think it was Bowie's first choice, is that right? Well, we've discussed this, haven't we? I mean, he was a big fan of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and also Derek and Clive, and they, he also knew he needed a virtuoso player. So Woody was saying before that he would hear Bowie banging out tunes, like from Mars mm. and, and All You Pretty Things, at Haddon Hall on the piano. 
piano, but not capable of really putting all the flourishes in and the real virtuoso kind of touch that he reckoned they needed. Yeah. And so Dudley Moore, really amazing uh, pianist. I mean, not many people know him, yeah, but he, and he used to tip up on light entertainment programs yeah. on, a, on a, a Saturday night, and everybody knew him. And they're like, oh, what's going on here then? And he'd sit down at the piano, and he really was amazing. But yeah. the story being that, that David sent him a letter requesting him to come and perform on the album, and he, and he never heard back. Oh, okay. Well, it might have been. Anyway, Rick Wakeman, of course, had played on Space Oddity before, and he was a member of the Strobes, which is a band that Bowie regularly played alongside when he was at the Beckenham Arts Lab. Rick Wakeman, got to say, he will get his own special section further down in the series. Yeah. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Okay, so let's look at the recording of the album. So new bass player Trevor Boulder replaced Tony Visconti. He was working with T-Rex at mm. this time anyway, wasn't he? And uh, let's not forget, got a hysteria around in T-Rex at this point in time. They were just absolutely Huge. ginormous. So you, you can't really blame him for that. But uh, yeah, Hunky Dory was the first production featuring all the members of the band that would become known the following year as Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And we've got a lot of quotes now, but it's all great stuff yeah. uh, about Hunky Dory and the recording of it. And they're taken from a book by a guy Guy called Ken Sharp, and it's called Kooks, Queen Bitches, and Andy Warhol: The Making of Davy Bowie's Hunky Dory. Now you know uh, you know Ken Sharp a little bit, or his work. Yeah, I sort of know because I know he writes for uh, classic rock as well, and seems to specialise in Bowie. But he's a he's a serial biographer at the same time. He's a loads of biographies, you know, Yardbirds and Cheap Trick, and loads and loads of stuff. Great writer, and seemed to have um, this sort of almost like an especial access to the people around Bowie because he wrote some really interesting articles for classic rock that I was quite jealous of, to be right. honest. And of course, this book, which was only produced in a very short run of about 200, I believe. Yeah, 200. I mean, I tried to buy it. Yeah. I didn't know about it until recently. I tried to buy it and I looked everywhere and couldn't get it. And Ken, I got in touch with Ken and he got back straight away. He mm. said, thank you, Ken. And he told me, yeah, 200 copies and there's no sign of a reprint, which is a real shame. I did the same thing. It must have been probably a few hours after you and he said, right. yeah, I've already been to Mark Riley. Oh. Anyway, so, so from his book, anyway, so he says, uh, this is uh, Woody Woodmancy talking from his book. He says, during that time, David really got into writing songs. Not that there weren't songs on The Man Who Sold the World, but on that album, we get a chord sequence that Mick and Tony would put a bit in. It was really influenced by what Mick and I had been into a couple of years prior to that. And a lot of those songs, David hadn't written the lyrics. Uh, we'd just put the backing tracks down and he'd come in at the end and write all the lyrics. Between The Man Who Sold The World, I think he was just soaking up all the successful stuff that he liked. OK, what is it going to take to be a successful rock and roll star? That kind of thing. So for Hunky Dory, he was starting to write a lot more on piano. I'd hear him in Haddon Hall plunking out very simple chords. Then he got a bit more skilled. 
Yeah, it's funny, you know, because uh, going back to The Man Who Sold the World, I, I did re- read uh, interviews, I think it was with Woody, actually, mm. but the story was that the band were all labouring away, just banging away, like, you know, <laughs> getting it right, working it in the studio, getting the arrangements right, and Bowie had uh, just kind of fallen in love not that long before with Angie, yeah. and they were just smitten with each other, and they were off doing something else somewhere right. else, and, and then he come back in at the recording and go, right, I'm here now, are you all done? Right, I'll do my bit, and well. then write the lyrics, which is great. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, Woody said that they, they didn't have a lot of time to write the songs uh, he said uh, sometimes it was straight into the studio okay let's do this song I don't recall any real rehearsals for the songs on Hunky Dory uh, he said all through the albums we did with David we didn't really rehearse tracks before we went in and recorded sometimes you do a little bit of work on what the approach was going to be say for Life on Mars it had a classical feel and we were thinking how can we keep it so it's a rock thing so you could play in front of a rock audience it had a classical feel so it was a blend of John Bonham plays classical almost we made sure to play tasteful too. If you played anything, it had to be tasteful rather than our approach on The Man Who Sold The World, which was, how can I get all my favourite fills and Mick with his guitar licks onto this album? <laughs> yes. Yeah, great. I mean, they, but they must have been like kids in the sweet shop in, oh, the, in yeah. the studio anyway, particularly, as I say, with Bowie not actually being around that much, just getting on with yeah, it. Yeah, do what you like. He says, as well as looking at the material as a song, he knew he had to go out and do it live, so he didn't want too much of the I'm just a songwriter type of songs with all different styles. So it was a concern of making it sound like a unit. In many ways, the songs on Ziggy were much better suited to live performance. You can't really argue with that, Not can you? Not at all, no. Uh, we're looking at Bob Grace, who we've already covered, uh, who's the general manager at Chrysalis Music, uh, late 60s to early 70s, who actually came up with the title Hunky Dory, didn't he? For his uh, pub landlord in Escher somewhere. That's right. As discussed. He says the songs have been in David's head for a long time. Now they're all out of his head and on tape or on acetate. Later in his career, his work in the studio, like when he worked in Berlin, was more extemporaneous. But this is more structured. It was more like the 60s where a songwriter writes his songs when they're all finished some of them will get covered some don't and then later on we'll do the album like Carol King or Neil Sedaka would have done it which is really interesting parallel that yeah, isn't it it is he says I was part of the selection team but ultimately David decided with Ken what songs to record there was one song Fill Your Heart by Biff Rose uh, that David was thinking of not doing for the album but I knew Derek Green a guy who'd been my mentor as a publisher had published that song so I managed to persuade David to keep that on the album so I did my mate a favour and got him a David Bowie cut. Was that a, a wise move? Well, I mean, it is funny because I, I, I'm i not that mad on that tune. It's my least favourite tune on Hunky Dory. It is the weakest tune on there. Definitely. I would say so. But So it would seem that he did his mate a favour, but not Bowie. I mean, if you look at the other tunes that we've already said he neglected and, and, and overlooked for, mm. it's Bombers. I'd rather have either Bombers or It Ain't Easy on there. Yeah, sure. Uh, and we got neither. Uh, but Trevor Boulder said David would play us songs on an acoustic guitar and we'd sit in the studio, learn it, and then just go for it. It was the first album I ever played on and the first time I'd been in the studio, which is incredible. Uh, I was nervous at first, but we settled down pretty quick. The run-throughs were OK, but when we were going to do a take, I hated the red light that would go on. That would be the thing that was always get to me. He said, I was like, oh, God, if I make a mistake, it's going to ruin everything. It was fun to work on the record and exciting, but in a way it was more important to get your part down than whether the song was any good or not. We didn't really know it until the album was mixed, and then you'd play it at home and you went, 
What a great album. All the pressure was off then, wasn't it? Yeah, just happy that he nailed his bits, you know, and that was it. Move yeah. on. Uh, Ken Scott said, to me, most great things occur with the right team and there was an intuitive relationship between me, David and Mick. I'd also add Woody and Trevor to that as well. Uh, in talking to uh, Woody recently, he said there wasn't he wasn't given enough time to really learn the songs. As simplistic as his playing was, there's an edge to it that just works so well in all those songs and as a bass player, Trevor just nailed it. More often than not, with the right team, you're all on the same wavelength and your choices are instinctive you don't have to talk about things. That certainly happened, he says, on the first two records, Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. I always had to keep one step ahead of him, try to hear in mind what he might want next and make sure we could do it. There'd be nothing worse than getting three quarters of the way through a song and now he wants to put down five sets of vocals. He hated coming along to mixing sessions. I love this. In fact, he generally hated being in the studio, I think. During the four albums I worked with him, he only showed up at one mixing session, which was for the song Lady Grinning Soul from Aladdin Sane, which is interesting, isn't it? You know, you're talking about you know having trust in you know, people that you work with, you know, implicit trust and the rest of it. You obviously didn't like being in the studio, but thought, listen, Ken, you, you know what you're doing with this. I, I trust you here. You can do it. And, uh, you know, and we also know that he, the way that he worked in the studio, it, it, he knew when he got the take that he wanted. Quite mm. often it was the first one. In his own mind, he was just happy with that. And so if he'd nailed what the band had to do and he trusted Ken Scott, yeah, go off with Angie again. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, the cover. Oh. Now the cover. You, you've got your cover. I'm going to get my cover out here. I'm just going to hear I'm just going to pass that over to you, Mark. Right. So, okay, so the style of the album cover, uh, designed by George Underwood, of course, wasn't it his mate influenced by a Marlene Dietrich photo book uh, Bowie took her to the photo shoot yeah George said David asked me to hand in a sepia print he gave me the front cover I commissioned Terry Pasta to airbrush the print we called our studio Main Artery the photo was taken by Brian Ward mm. so it is one of the most iconic album covers ever oh yes and uh, the great thing is that you've got the juxtaposition of the front and the back mm. so I mean we, you know again we'll talk you through it a little bit but you know it's a, it's a handwritten uh, 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 the track listing and the credits and his, some of his thoughts and some of his doodlings and stuff crossed out and the fact that, you know, he's got white light returned with all yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the, the photograph of himself, uh, Davy Bowie, he hated, apparently, these pants being called Oxford bags. Why was that? I'm not sure. He, okay. he had a problem with it, though, so uh, we won't. Obviously, we'll gloss over that. Right, completely. fine. Uh, but, uh, yeah, an iconic shot on the back, but kind of like a little bit tatty, really, in comparison to the front, which mm. is so stylish and yeah. stylized, and the back is just him doodling away um, but I love the fact that yes okay we look at this hunky dory now been replicated so many times in so many different places yeah. my favourite version of this album is the New Zealand version mm. which was uh, basically the back cover is the front cover as well so the, that iconic image of Bowie with his hair long and looking forlorn into the sky doesn't exist No, it does. so was that a mistake then I take it that was a, an error in the plant what happened apparently was that the artwork didn't make it over to New Zealand and oh. so the front artwork either just didn't get sent or got lost in transit and it had to be replicated pretty quickly and so they just did it and had no option but to do the front and the back but it was also Blam actually who told me total Blam Blam Mark Adams hello mate uh, DavidBowie.com and yeah. Bowie's trusty uh, right hand man for so so long he told me that when it was repressed they, they decided to go with the same cover again I'm not sure why. I mean, uh, maybe they just thought, right, okay, this has got our stamp all over it. People Mm. know that this is the New Zealand version of Hunky Dory. Or whether they've just still not got hold of the front cover. Who can say? Um, And I bought a few copies probably around about 15, 20 years ago. uh, And I didn't pay much for it. I probably paid about 20, 25 quid for it or something like that. Really? Worth about 140, 150 pounds now. So where do you keep all your Bowie memorabilia under lock and key? I'm not telling you, Bob. (laughs) Fair enough. 
The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Should we get to the album itself? Yes, when, I think so. We're now up to side one. Finally, changes. Of course, one of Bowie's most popular songs, the last song he performed on stage in 2006. Uh, Bowie has said that the track started out as a parody of a nightclub song, a kind of throwaway. And the musical arrangement, of course, features uh, Bowie's saxophone, Rick Wakeman on keyboards, Mick Ronson on strings. We'll get onto Ronson a little bit more in a second. And the lyrics, you know, all about the sort of compulsive nature of uh, artistic reinvention, that strange fascination, changes taking the pace I'm going through, and also Bowie distancing himself, to some extent, from the rock mainstream. You know, look out, you rock and rollers. Yeah, and, uh, and a wonderful song, an absolutely wonderful song. Uh, song number two, Oh You Pretty Things. Uh, people say it's based on the style of uh, Martha My Dear by the Beatles, quite possibly. Thematically, the song has been seen as reflecting the influence of occultist Alistair Crowley, philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, and Edward Bulwer-Lytton's novel 1871, Vril, The Power of the Coming Race, and heralding the impending obsolescence of the human race in favour of an alliance between arriving aliens and the youth of the present society. Well done. Easy for you to say, Mark. Uh, But the uh, song was first released by Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits in a single on which David Bowie played piano and played piano on top of the pops. Now, that became a hit, number 12 in 1971. Mm-hmm. Much talked about was the fact that he changed the line, the original line, the earth is a bitch, to the earth is a beast. And he was fallen on the shoulders of either Roy Carr or Charles Charles Murray. Not entirely sure, but both worked for the enemy. Yeah. The quote taken from the enemy, oh dear. Okay, are you ready for this? Go on. Uh, one of rock and roll's most outstanding examples of a singer failing to achieve any degree of empathy whatsoever with the mood and content of a lyric. Now that is brutal. It really is a brutal assessment, isn't it? But possibly worthwhile. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with that on top of the parts, apart from making it a big fluffy, bouncy pop tune. You well, know? I think the I think the inference is that he didn't really know what yeah. the hell he was singing about because it was so deep, you know. Yeah. And then Bowie had gone into all of this philosophy, and he's just tootling away and <laughs> winking, and you know. And he probably didn't care either. No. We get to eight line poem, which is curious, and probably the best thing about it is Mick Ronson's guitar playing. And you have to say, it's sort of countryish. You've not quite heard Ronson in this mode before. Maybe there's a bit of a Neil Youngish influence going on there, Chet Atkins and the rest of it. And so you've got Bowie following suit, he's playing piano and almost reinventing himself as a country singer. He stops just short of doing a yodel at some at one point, doesn't he? Thankfully. Mm. Okay, so track number four, Life on Mars. Oh. So um, in uh, 1968, Bowie had written the lyrics Even a Fool Learns to Love, set to the music of a 1967 French song, Comme d'habitude, which was composed by uh, Claude Francois and Jacques Riveau. So Bowie's version was never released, but Paul Anker, of course, bought the rights to the original French version and turned it into My Way, which was the song made famous in 69 by Frank Sinatra. Yeah, and Bowie was livid apparently when all this happened. And I have to say, uh, I probably can't. I probably can't give a credit to who uh, actually played me this in the Go first on. place. But uh, I have heard the original recording of Bowie singing along to the record playing behind him. Really? Yeah. Okay. And so obviously, I mean, if he's got an idea for the song and lyrics mm. and all that kind of stuff, he's not going to be able to hire a, an orchestra to no. do a demo of it. Mm. So you can hear the other guy singing in the background and the music playing, and, right. and Bowie singing his own words over oh, it. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, of course, the success of Anker's version prompted Bowie to write Life on Mars as a parody of Sonata's recording. Bowie noted that Rick Wakeman embellished the uh, piano part of his original me- uh, melody and guitarist Mick Ronson created one of his first and best string parts for the song. The liner notes about the back sleeve of Hunky Dory indicate the song was inspired by Frankie. And you've got to say, Ronson's string work, that is incredible, especially that de- the descending chords 
at the end is just so dramatic. Uh, one reviewer suggested the song was written after a brief and painful affair uh, with uh, dancer Hermione Farthingale. While on tour in 1990, interestingly enough, Bowie introduced the song by saying, you fall in love, you write a song, this is a love song. And there's one more sort of interesting thing here because the song also references Alley Oop, which was a 1960 hit for the uh, Hollywood Argyles, which was a band sort of, you know, created by Kim Fowley uh, over in, in um, California, which features the line, look at those cavemen go. So, uh, you know, Bowie had already met Kim Fowley, hadn't he? Yeah, he was hanging out with uh, Rodney Binghamheimer, yeah, wasn't he? Rodney's yeah. English disco and all that, and then, and and he championed Bowie, and so uh, yeah, he got to know he got to know Kim Fowley most certainly, didn't he? Mm. Uh, all right, so track number five, Kooks, written to his newborn son Duncan Jones, as we know in Neil Young and the, the arrival of Duncan and mm. all that kind of stuff. In 1973, David Bowie would tell journalist David Wig, "I got the name Zowie from a Batman comic. I'm going to tell him later that he can call himself anything he wants to if he doesn't like the name," <laughs> uh, and apparently. Tony DeFree thought that Kooks would be a really good bet for a single from the LP. Mm. Mm, I'm really sure about that. And of course, he gave the name to the band, uh, the Cooks, of course. Quicksand, recorded July 1971, a ballad, multi-tracked acoustic guitars, great string arrangement, again by Mick Ronson. Uh, uh, Ken Scott, who'd previously engineered All Things Must Pass for George Harrison, sort of brought a bit of of that to it, didn't he? Kind of bringing out the acoustic sound. It really worked, it really worked. Uh, And lyrically, of course, like much of Bowie's work around this time, influenced by Buddhism, Cultism and Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, concept of the Superman uh, it refers to the magical society of the Golden Dawn. Name checks again Alistair Crowley as well as uh, Heinrich Himmler, Winston Churchill, and Garbo. You know, the lyrics like, I'm just a mortal with potential of a Superman. So it's he a did, heady mix. It is, certainly. Yeah. Okay, uh, and, uh, he did start his tour uh, in uh, 1997 with Quicksand, mm. and I know this because, Bob, I introduced him oh, and he walked past now. me and then he did it on stage. Did I'm he? moving on, oh, moving on. Stop, stop. So, Fill Your Heart, so we have mentioned this, it's written by Biff Rose and Paul Williams. Who were these people? So Paul Biff Rose was born in uh, New Orleans, 1937. American comedian, singer-songwriter, uh, humorist as well. Uh, he moved to Hollywood where he found a job working as a comedy writer, sketch writer with George Carlin. Uh, used to write for the Mort Saal TV show. He tried his hand as a stand-up comic for a while. I don't think it was that successful. Eventually began writing songs with a sort of comedic bent, performing his own stuff on piano. Recorded his first two albums for uh, Tetragrammaton Records. And after the release of The Thorn in Mrs Rose's Side in 1968, which contained the songs uh, Buzz the Fuzz, Rose made uh, 12 appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So he's a regular from uh, 68 to 1970. And of course, Fill Your Heart was one of his best-known compositions, covered by... Uh, Tiny Tim on the B-side of Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Yeah, and Bowie has mentioned Tiny Tim before, hasn't he? So yeah. Uh, Tiny Tim was definitely on uh, Bowie's radar. Maybe that's even where, where he heard it. It's hard to say, really. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And Paul Williams, you, you know, he's an American composer, singer. He wrote lots of big tunes for Three Dog Night and various other people, but he also, perhaps most famously, wrote The Carpenters, We've Only Just Begun and Rainy Days and Mondays, which are great tunes. Yeah, I should mention at this point, you know, I did interview Biff Rose in 2005. I dug it out the other day, so I got it with me. Uh, Bowie had called him the flower power Randy Newman. I think he was a fan to an extent, you know, because right. he'd covered Buzz the Fuzz, as we mentioned, in uh, he played it on a BBC in concert session in February 1970, yeah. and it was in his stage set in 71, so even when he was playing Aylesbury, uh, Fry's Aylesbury, it was on it was doing Buzz the Fuzz, yeah, yeah. you know uh, and uh, Biff Rose, t- he said he still remembered Bowie, he didn't have a lot to say about Bowie he said, I met him in February 73 when I was opening for Bruce Springsteen at Max's Kansas City in New York, uh, Bowie was beaming, he said, I thanked him for doing Fill Your Heart, but I got on his ass a bit for copying the whole arrangement from me. 
Oh, hey. right. Okie dokie. All right, then. So, Andy Warhol. Yeah, it is an odd one. I mean, mm. it's, a, it's a great song, you know, but originally the song was written for Donna Gillespie anyway, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And who recorded it in 1971, but her version of the song wasn't released until 73 mm. with the album Weren't Born a Man, and uh, Mick Ronson features on both of them. So we know that David Bowie was a big admirer of Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground. We'll get to all that as well. But he sent an advanced copy of Hunky Dory to Andy Warhol. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, in uh, September 1970, before the album had been released and Andy Warhol he wasn't bothered was he he didn't like it in (laughs) fact you know it has been said previously I mean Bowie said at the time I'm not sure if he liked it or not but I think Bowie said further down the line that he absolutely hated it and and he'd say hang him on the wall hang him on the wall what do you mean hang him on the wall I mean obviously he's just talking about his artwork but I I don't know if he was taking him literally or something but he, he, he didn't like it right I mean straight after that you've got another reference here this is song for Bob Dylan of course which sort of is a parody of Dylan's sort of earlier homage to uh, Woody Guthrie, you know, song to Woody. Yeah. Although, you know, in a different vein here. So uh, Bowie kind of addresses Dylan by saying, now hear this, Robert Zimmerman, I wrote a song for you. And he describes Bob Dylan's voice as, you know, like sand and glue, which had also been compared to by a few other people. He premiered the song in June 71 at a BBC concert session with uh, George Underwood. This is obviously his mate from school and from the King Bees yep. singing lead vocals on this. And during the broadcast, uh, Bowie introduced the song itself as a song for Bob Dylan, Here She Comes. And uh, Bowie also said that he was uh, partially driven by the notion amongst a lot of the Dylan fans that they'd been abandoned by him. Mm. And so Bowie kind of just wanted to vocalise their anger. I mean, talk about, you know, Andy Warhol not being impressed. There are stories about Bowie meeting uh, Bob Dylan and him being equally unimpressed. Well, yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, around about this time, Dylan had taken a back step from being, you know, the the voice of the generation. He got fed up with all that, didn't he? And so the generation were like, Bob, what about us? And he was thinking, you look after yourselves. You're adults. I'm not your spokesman get, get lost. It. and of course Queen Bitch which is you know, the third song in succession really on Honky Dory it was really directly influenced by uh, another artist being, This, of course in this case being the Velvet Underground yep. great tribute to Lou Reed and the rest of it I mean it sort of you know, it provides a template for songs that sort of dominate uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust like many Bowie albums there's always one tune on there that is sort of acts as a signpost to the next one yeah it's true. it's true main riff of course uh, similar to Sweet Jane by VU actually though it's lifted from uh, Three Steps to Heaven by Eddie Cochran by uh, Mick Ronson Right, okie dokie. So, and we're on to track 11 now, Mm. the Buley Brothers. So, one of the last tracks to be written and recorded for the LP and was recorded when the band had gone home. So, just Bowie and Ken Scott in attendance and unlike the rest of the LP, the song wasn't written before they went in for the sessions. It was written and recorded in one day and night. That's remarkable, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's been described as probably Bowie's densest and most impenetrable song written with Americans in mind. I love this. He thought that they were more prone to interpreting lyrics, so it was almost a case of pick the bones out of that, you know? He's just like, I'm going to throw a load of abstract stuff in here and, uh, and they can come up with whatever they want for it. Right. Also, they got the name from a tobacconist near the Trident Studio. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. terrific. And yeah, Bowie also named his publishing company Boulay Brothers Music, didn't he? And it was also non-diplume for him and Iggy Pop and Colin Thurston for uh, Lost for Life. Yeah, that's right. And as you just mentioned, Bowie has said to, you know, he even told Ken Scott that uh, you know, it was kind of aimed at Americans, you know, because they always like to read uh, things into things, even though the lyrics, he said, make absolutely no sense. Although, you know, in late years, you know, by 2008 uh, Bowie was writing, he said, I wouldn't wouldn't really know how to interpret the lyric of this song other than suggesting there are layers of ghosts within it, which is just, you know, kind of offering clues in in itself. Some commentators have sort of suggested it makes references to Bowie's half-brother Terry Burns, who suffered from schizophrenia. Bowie said at the time the lyrics were nonsense but in later years he hinted it was perhaps inspired by Terry. He says, I was never quite sure what real position Terry had in my life. This is in the year 2000, Bowie talking, whether Terry was a 
real person or whether I was actually referencing another part of me. And I think Buley Brothers was really about that. Do you know, it is strange, isn't it? I mean, how many times do you hear of Bowie actually admitting at some point that uh, one of his songs was influenced by the presence of his brother yeah, and, yeah. and, and the, the foreboding that Bowie had about Terry's condition and, and doubting whether, you know, he would be able to yeah. get through his own life without being uh, afflicted with the same kind of thoughts. And, yeah, it's really, it's really prescient, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so John Mendelssohn of Rolling Stone magazine wrote, this is good, he said, the Bule brothers sound like something that got left off the man who sold the world because it wasn't loud enough. That's a really good point. I mean, it wasn't because we've just ascertained that it, was, it wasn't written beforehand, but it has got that kind of darkness to it. And, of course, again, you've got all the Mad Men, which was about yeah, Terry. Yeah, and so. the density as well of that. You know, completely yeah but he said uh, musically it's quiet and barren and sinister lyrically virtually impenetrable a stream of consciousness stream of strange and seemingly unrelated imagery and it closes with several repetitions of a chilling chorus sung in a broad cockney accent which if it's any help David usually invokes when he's attempting to communicate something about the impossibility of ever completely transcending the mundane circumstances of one's birth that's really interesting that's so heavy <laughs> yeah. and uh, of course yeah the king of Oblivion was used by the Pink Fairies uh, for the title of their third album, which is a killer record. It was. So the critics, I mean it, what Melody Maker called it the most inventive piece of songwriting to appear on record in a considerable time. NME called it Bowie at his brilliant best. So already, you know, he's getting this reputation. Uh, Rolling Stones say that Hunky Dory not only represents Bowie's most engaging album musically, also finds him once more writing literally enough to let the listener examine his ideas comfortably without having to withstand a barrage of seemingly impregnable verbiage before getting at an idea. Blimey, and Bowie himself considered the album to be one of the most important of his career. Speaking in 1999, he said, Hunky Dory gave me a fabulous groundswell. I guess it provided me, for the first time in my life, with an actual audience. I mean, people actually coming up to me and saying, good album, good songs. That hadn't happened to me before. I was like... Ah, I'm getting it. I'm finding my feet. I'm starting to communicate what I want to do now. Now, what is it I want to do? There was always a double whammy there. Um, And, of course, again, because of the actual uh, physicality of Ziggy Stardust looming large Mm. straight away, they never toured Hunky Dory, did they? Yeah, you get the feeling they never really had the time to enjoy it properly. It it must have been really weird for the record company because they got this record. Uh, Who knows what they actually thought of it, but you would think that they would recognise there's some amazing tunes on there. You know, I mean, not least, we go on about Life on Mars and Buley Brothers or whatever changes. Uh, But you get it and you try to market it. By the time that they'd actually got this with that cover mm. and that back with his long flowing lock. He'd cut his hair. Yeah. And so they were supposed to market a pop star who didn't look anything like the guy on the record. So it must have been a bit of a head-scratcher for them. Also, the thing is, they probably had him pegged to think, oh, great, this is what he does. He's a singer-songwriter at the piano and all the rest of it. And Ziggy was just miles from that, and they had no idea whether that was going to sell at all. Deal with it. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Heroes, Tony Hatch, Hansa Studios.